It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. When the Sitka Assembly meets tonight, it will consider whether to put a cannabis tax ballot question out to the voters for consideration in the October 4th municipal election. The Assembly considered a similar ballot question in 2021 that would have levied an additional 5% consumer sales tax on marijuana. It failed on a split vote at the Assembly table. The new measure would eliminate the standard city sales tax on cannabis and replace it with a marijuana tax that would increase gradually over the next three years, from 6% to 10%. The proceeds would benefit the Sitka School District Student Activity Fund, which helps families afford the cost of extracurricular activities, including travel and supplies. The Assembly will also, on first reading, consider approving the final draft of the General Fund and Enterprise Fund budgets. It will also consider a resolution supporting Alaska House Bill 149, which allows certain child daycare providers to organize for collective bargaining and establishes a fund for daycare providers. The Sitka Assembly meets at 6 p.m. tonight. Raven News will broadcast the meeting live following Alaska News Nightly. A Sitka daughter and father will be tried separately for their involvement in a hit-and-run that led to the death of a bicyclist. 19-year-old Brooke Mulligan was arrested in March of 2021 after she allegedly struck a bicyclist with her car on Halibut Point Road and then drove away. 20-year-old Terry Allen Carlson Jr. later died of his injuries. Among other charges, Mulligan, now 20, was indicted by a Sitka grand jury on felony manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide charges. Her father, Richard Mulligan, was indicted for tampering with evidence and assisting a person who may have committed a felony after he allegedly returned to the scene of the accident to remove evidence. On Friday, a Sitka judge heard arguments from state prosecutors and the defense teams for both defendants about whether to try the cases separately or together. Judge Jude Pate ruled that the cases should be tried separately, but an evidentiary hearing for both cases was set for June 15th. The cases are tentatively scheduled to go to trial in late July. Millions of dollars for a new Petersburg Medical and Public Health Center are in the state's capital budget, at least at this point in the process. But as KFSK's Angela Denning reports, there is a long way to go before it gets approved. Senator Burt Stedman proposed $20 million for the project in the state's capital budget bill. The amount is $11.4 million in the House's version. The funding would ultimately come from federal grant money in the Coronavirus Capital Project Fund. But first, the state legislature has to approve it in the budget bill, which would then allow the governor to apply for the federal money. Hospital CEO Phil Hofstetter says it's exciting. I think it's great. <laughs> We're crossing our fingers. I'm, I'm just holding my breath a little bit until it goes through to the governor's signature. A lot has to happen before funding is approved. The Senate and the House will get together and decide on a final amount. It can't be more than the Senate's $20 million proposal. Then the governor will need to approve applying for the federal funds. Petersburg Medical Center has been slowly working towards a new facility, planning to use outside funding over several years. The current facility is aging with plumbing and electrical problems, and it's undersized. It's in the downtown area with no additional space available, so PMC is looking at establishing a new site. The hospital's building is owned by the borough, but it's run separately by the medical center and the hospital board. Board member Kathy Reamer says it would be exciting to have the federal funding, but the board hasn't even discussed it yet. We haven't even had a chance to talk about any of this yet, of course, because we 
um, it's new. It's brand new. The hospital received $8 million in the federal omnibus bill, which was approved in March. Hofstetter says it will be used for the initial phase, which will include the site selection, environmental study, and the complete planning and design. This new capital budget funding would also be used for getting the site shovel ready. The project has been estimated to cost about $90 to $110 million. Hofstetter says getting state and federal funding approved will help the project continue to get more funding, which is the ultimate goal. There's other programs that are out there that, uh, you know, if you have federal and state support, sort of puts a, you know, almost like a a certificate of of approval that this is a a supported program and it provides opportunity for other types of federal and state programs to build off of that. According to staff at Senator Stedman's office, lawmakers hope and plan to be done with the budget by the end of the regular session, May 18th. In Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. Ballots have been mailed for the special primary election to fill Alaska's lone U.S. House seat left vacant after the death of Representative Don Young. Voters will choose one candidate from a field of 48. State Division Elections Director Gail Thanumiai says it's important voters read all the instructions before casting their ballot. Vote your ballot, get it back, make sure you sign, provide an identifier and have it witnessed, and get it postmarked on or before Election Day. There's no postage required. If you make a mistake, Fanumiai says voters can contact any division of elections office for assistance or to request a replacement ballot. So if someone makes a mistake on their ballot, their by-mail ballot, and does not have an opportunity to ask for a replacement ballot, they can draw a line through their mistake and write no and then go and fill in the oval of their correct choice. In addition to returning ballots by mail, she says ballots can also be cast or dropped off at the Division of Election offices located in Juneau, Anchorage, Wasilla, Fairbanks, and Nome. Mailed-in ballots must be postmarked by June 11th and received by June 21st. Fanumiai says ballot counting will begin on Election Day and completed on June 21st. Under Alaska's new ranked-choice voting system, the top four candidates will appear on the final special election ballot. That election will be held August 16th. the same day as the regular primary election. Registration for the special primary election is still open. The deadline is May 12th. For a link to a list of all communities offering in-person voting and a link to register to vote, look for this story at krbd.org. Hundreds of voters in Alaska are waiting for results in the Philippine national election. Polls closed early Monday morning. Most votes have been counted, and Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is projected to win. Marcos's father was the dictator who was ousted from power by a popular uprising in the 1980s. That's when many Filipinos fled the country and ended up in Alaska. And now, some voters here are actually pinning their hopes on having a Marcos in office again. Jennifer Pimberton from KTOO reports. Leo Evangelista got two ballots in the mail in the last few weeks. I voted for our U.S. Congress, and then I just voted for the Philippine president, you know. Evangelista is a dual citizen. He's lived in Anchorage since the early 90s and has worked as a mail carrier for more than 25 years. It's a common job for Filipinos in Alaska. The family always said, uh, you want to be a nurse or you want to be a mailman? (laughs) His wife works for the post office, too. They didn't mess around when they sent their ballots to the consulate in San Francisco. They added extra postage and sent them priority. He's not too worried, though. His candidate, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., is expected to win.
Even if you're not following Philippines politics closely, that name is probably familiar to you. Marcos Jr., the candidate, goes by his childhood nickname, Bong Bong. He's the son of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos. His father ruled the Philippines from the mid-1960s to the mid-1980s, part of that time under martial law. Evangelista is like so many Filipinos who left the country either during the Marcos regime or shortly after. It was a very tumultuous time in the Philippines. He says life is better in the U.S. because there are jobs. Opportunity. That's why I moved here, you know. But life is better in the Philippines, too, he says. It's cheap and warm. And besides, it's home. He hopes that under the leadership of another Marcos, the country will continue to become more like how he remembers it. He plans to move there as soon as he retires. On the Friday night before the election, Rochelle Solonoy is driving around Juneau, picking up three of her girlfriends to go get Filipino food at a restaurant in the valley. And we're celebrating because Bongo's going to win. In six and a half years, she'll retire from her state job. She's also planning on moving back. Because when you go home to the Philippines, you feel like a queen. You know, your, your money stretches. She's excited about Marcos's promises to keep cleaning up the cities, to keep building infrastructure, and to build a new economy. She dreams of a big reunion in the Philippines, a homecoming for all the overseas workers. The older people will retire on the beautiful beaches. The younger people will finally have jobs there and be reunited with families some of them have never met. But Solonoy wasn't always a Marcos supporter. She left the Philippines in 1981 when she was still a kid, but she went back to visit in 1986. She was a teenager, and she says she got caught up in the revolution to unseat Marcos. And I kind of like listened to them. I mean, they portrayed Marcos to be the dictator. Of course, I believe all of that. But she has since relearned the political history of her country. She says she's still learning through YouTube videos. In these videos, the years of martial law in the Philippines are now remembered as the golden years. And Marcos is remembered as a philanthropist. This narrative has emerged from the intentional spread of misinformation on social media. But Solonoy thinks she was lied to for 30 years. That's why I was like, oh my God, I was so stupid. A lot of people are thinking that way now. So we want Marcos back. When Marcos wins, and she's confident he will, she's going to the Philippines. I want to go visit him. I want to go to Malacanang, and I'm going to, like, really talk to him because... Malacanang is the presidential palace. She wants to talk to him in person and make sure that there's a place for her and her friends to return to after 30 years away. In Juneau, I'm Jennifer Pemberton. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News.